Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Nick Shivers with Keller Williams Realty in Portland, Oregon. Last year, he closed 240 transactions with a total sales volume of $72 million. His average sales price was $306,000, of which 42% were buyers and 58% were sellers. He has a 16-member team, five buyer agents, two listing agents, two inside sales agents, one sales manager, one administrative manager, one buyer coordinator, one listing coordinator, one runner, one chief financial officer, and one team leader. Nick Shivers is the team leader of West One Properties Group. He's been an agent for 13 years. In his best year, 2013, he sold 329 homes worth $82 million. In this call, Nick talks about how he got a fast start and sold 48 homes his first year by focusing on circle prospecting and door knocking the script he uses to call around other agents' listings to find sellers, how to develop the team culture that you want, and what to do if it's not working, achieving the seventh level and letting the team run on autopilot, his marketing plan for reaping and referrals from past clients and sphere of influence, how he ranks his past clients to determine who should receive his attention first, the script he uses to qualify old forgotten leads, housewarming parties to solidify your new client relationship and meet their friends and family, radio ads that generate 4 to 1 ROI, tracking lead flow with pink sheets, the career path for team agents including inside sales agent, showing agent, buyer agent, and listing agent, showing agent duties and compensation, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Nick. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about the call. Hey, Nick, it's great to have you here. Nick, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I am a serial entrepreneur because no one would ever hire me. So um, after I dropped out of college, I went and was a fitness director at a health club. Um, I, you know, I, I love that job. I taught aerobics. It, it was a fun job, but unless you were the, a, a trainer to the stars, it was tough to make a, a living that way. So I started an auto glass business and I did that for, I think five years. And then I sold that company and I started a company called Tele Latino, which was a internet TV and phone service for uh, Latino clients. And uh, I had that going in Oregon and Washington very successfully, and then I decided that I was going to expand to California, 
and I undercapitalized and overexpanded, so I lost my fanny. And so that, that is where I came to, I needed to get into uh, real estate. And, uh, you know, you, you learn from your, your failures and you move on. You said you dropped out of college. What happened there? You know, I've never been much of a student. I have a form of dyslexia. And I always thought, you know, I, you, know I, you have to go to college to be successful. And I tried. And my first year, I did really, really good. But uh, after that, it was, <laughs> I went to a lot of different colleges. So I have a lot of alumni. I figured, why am I continuing to do this? Uh, and I struck out on running some businesses. When you went into real estate, why did you choose real estate versus all the other options you had available to you? Well, I had made pretty good money on real estate investment, and I knew that I had an understanding. I, I've, I've always been a good people connector, and I looked at all the different industries, and you know, again, I, I had basically sold every real estate uh, investment that I had, as well as my per- two personal homes, to get out of the hole, because the one thing that I said I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to go bankrupt, I was going to pay everybody back. So I did that. I moved into my in-laws home. I just had my first child and that was not very fun. Uh, I love my in-laws, but, uh, so I said, I, I know I can be successful with people. And I looked at one of the biggest return on investments for commissions and real estate was it. And so that's why I got into real estate. Nick, how long have you been in real estate? I started in 2000. I took a two-year hiatus from 2006 to 2007 because my wife had uh, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I had two kids at the time, little one, real little kids. And so I took a two-year, two years off to take care of the kids and, and, you know, help my wife through chemo and stuff like that. By the grace of the Lord, my wife is in full remission down to the molecular level. So it worked out. Glad to hear that everything's better. When you started up in 2000, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I had a fast start because, again, when, when you have a big why, I think that helps drive you. So I worked diligently. I did about $8 million my first year. And how many transactions would that be in your area? Back then, I, I don't remember. I think it was close to 48 deals. Wow, that is a super fast start. Do you recall what you were doing that first year to get that quick start? Yes, I did two things. I did circle prospecting and I did door knocking. So basically my script was I, I worked for Prudential at the time and I, and I didn't have any listings. So I would call around other people's listings and just say, hi, this is Nick Shivers with Prudential. We just sold a home on 18th Street and we had a lot of interest. Do you know anybody that's thinking about selling? And if they would say no, I'd say, great. Well, have you ever thought about selling? And it came down to I needed to talk to 33 people. And I can remember this because I wear my aviator glasses. I'd sit in my office for four hours a night, and I would, I would circle prospect. And I would have to talk to 33 people before I got a lead. In four hours, you would talk to 33 people, and that would result in one lead. I talked to more, but I w- when I averaged it all out, it, did t- it took 33 contacts on the phone for me to get one lead. And do you recall how many leads w- would take for you to get to one closing? You know, I was pretty good. So I've always been in, um, 
about 80%. If I could get a good lead, and, and, and I screen pretty well, about 80%, 70% of the time, we would, I, would get, I would get a deal. If I just do rough math in my head, that tells me if you talked to about 50 people, you'd end up with one closing. Yep. When you say circle prospecting, you're talking about telephone calling around a property that's listed or just sold? Just sold. I would call just sold properties. So you didn't call just listed. You only called just solds. Was there a reason why you did the solds and not the listeds? Well, yes, because again, I knew no better. Um, and I looked at it and said, okay, so this property just sold. And if people in the neighborhood seen that it just sold and I could get a hold of them and let them know that there were other buyers in neighborhoods, I thought that that was the best way for uh, me to get somebody that was motivated. Also sounds like you focused on listings rather than buyers. Did you almost exclusively work with sellers that first year? No, I think I was probably 50-50. And that's just a guesstimation because I can't remember. But I I, I did take a lot of listings. But I also worked with buyers, especially, I mean, if I'm selling homes, I I was also, I probably, you know, 60% of the time, they, they they were buying another home. So you've been in the business for about 13 years. You had a, a two-year hiatus there. Let's move to today. How many homes did you sell last year? We sold around 240 homes last year. Do you recall the sales volume? Yeah, we had 73 million. Do you know what your GCI was on that? It was just under 2.1 million. How many homes did you sell in your best year and what year was it? If I'm not mistaken, it was 2013, and we sold around 329 homes. Do you remember the volume that year? Yeah, that was $82 million. There are going to be some people listening, and they're going to say, well, from 2013 to 2014, it fell down a little bit. Do you know why your, your volume went down and your sales numbers went down a little bit between those two years? Yes, I took my team from about 21 down to four in 2014. Wow. How come? I had kind of stepped out of the business and I had a a CEO that again, a good, good guy, but he was the carrot stick type of management leadership. And basically we kept doing more business, but our profitability went down and uh, the culture was not where I wanted it. So me and him decided that we would part ways And because of the culture, there was about four people that I thought needed to stay and the rest um, didn't. And some of them chose to go on their own. So it wasn't all my decision. And so I blew it up in May of 2014 and basically started over with my core group. We're going to get into your team later, but you built it up now within the last year. How many people are you back up to? We are now back up to it with a group of rookies uh, to, a, I, I think we're at 20 agents and staff members. Do you currently have a CEO running it again, or have you taken charge and you're still running the, the show? Well, last time what I did was I removed myself without inspecting expectations. So this time I am in inspecting my expectations. I have basically a sales manager and an admin manager and a lead listing agent. I'm not really in production, but I am in with a vision and 
trust me, I watch our culture like a hawk because that is why we have done at the end of September as much as we did last year in 2014. So we have, we still have 90 days to go and it's all, it'll all be above what we did last year. You said culture, what aspects of culture do you focus on? What does that mean to you, culture? Well, in our world, I've heard many speakers say that people, your employees are your assets. Well, I do not treat people as a commodity. I believe of people before profit. I believe that you will have greatness. If you have a unified team, I think you can, you can beat anybody. So we have some key things when we join our company. Our vision, when they look at it, it says our job is to create and help fulfill dreams of our clients, our employees, and help underprivileged children around the world. So I, need, I, I show that to any people first, okay? Our vision also is to, for, for what I believe, is to glorify God and have a positive experience with anybody that comes in contact with our company. So I, I talk about that, and my sales manager talks about that, and then we start going through what we believe. We believe in people before profits, we believe in positive attitudes because I had a good friend once tell me, he said, Nick, it's not your aptitude that makes you successful. It's your attitude. Cause at the time, maybe my attitude wasn't that great. So it was kind of a, a insult and a compliment. So we're big about attitude. We're big about we before me. And again, I, I, I look at that as much as I do production. Yes. My agents are productive, but if you can be super productive, but if you're, if you're a bad teammate, you're not going to stay on my team. It's just because again, we spend a ton of time with each other. And if we're not a cohesive unit and there's trust in our organization, there it doesn't mean that there's not conflict, but when there's trust, you can have conflict. I know you probably don't want to go there, but I think there's probably a lesson in what you did and why you made a change if you don't mind going with me for a minute back a couple years so we can just get a, a picture of what happened so maybe people can avoid a pitfall, it sounds like you, you put someone in charge and the team was kind of running by its own for a while and you said you weren't inspecting it. How long was the team running on its own without you really in there as much as you, you now are in there? I would say probably half of 2013 and up until May of, so about a, probably close to a year where I had, I have kind of stepped back and let somebody else run it. So it was about a year, somebody else was running it. Help us identify what, what was wrong? What was the problem that you wanted to change? And then also tell us why you think that happened so that people could try to identify that early in their organizations. Well, what happened was I allowed, again, I am not a system organizer. I'm not a real systems person. I love people, but numbers and stuff like that, I, I don't like it. But the fact is, as a leader, even though you don't like it, you have to understand it and you have to review it. So because the person that I hired was really, really good at that, I just kind of washed my hands of that. And I didn't expect it. I didn't check it. And so not only did that person start running 
the numbers and stuff like that, and I didn't, I didn't inspect it, they started making personnel decisions. And the fact is they were terrible with people. So again, it was my lack of discipline to inspect everything. And, and again, I'm the, I'm the leader. Um, it wasn't anybody else's fault. I allowed that, that, that culture of, you know, it was old school. And then, you know, that person knew that's what they knew, but it was the old school carrot, you know, the reward, if you did good. And if you didn't do good, you'd get beat over the head. And again, if true, true, great people, I think will go, I will stay here long enough until I find something better. And then they'll leave. And, and I did, I lost some really good people, friends of mine that were like, you know, I'm done being beat over the head. And that, again, that comes back to my fault of not, you know, again, I'm never going to be this, this CPA or anything like that. And, and God didn't make me that way. So, but that doesn't make it. So I say, oh, you know, I don't need to know any of those things because that's just being silly. You have to. Sounds like you want to really strike a balance some kind of balance between having those systems and those numbers, but also having the people skills and, and the excitement in the office, the culture, and put those two together. Now, you've mentioned that your strength is not in the systems or the numbers side. It's more in the culture and the people side. Have you brought in, are you going to try to bring in two people, or have you already brought in two people who kind of offset each other to make that balance? Or have you found some individual that's super rare and has both of them already inside of them that you're going to bring up and put in that position again? Well, I, I kind of bring the rah-rah motivation. I have two people, my sales manager, he is great. He used to be a professional football coach. And he's great because the one thing that I have always missed, I'm a guy that says, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the roadmap to success. Now go do it. And that accountability piece, I, w- I am not good at. Because I'm thinking, hey, you know, if, if you give me a roadmap, I'm going to do it. Well, that doesn't necessarily, everybody needs someone to hold them accountable, even myself. When I, when I am at my peak, there's someone holding me accountable. And that was the big piece that we're missing. We, are, we have that now. We have scorecards. We have accountability sessions, both in our admin department and our sales department. And then I meet with them, those key people, on a, on a weekly basis and say, okay, how's things going? Because I know what needs to be done. I'm just not the person to do it. So I went and found somebody that believes in the same things that I do believes in the motivation that I do, but still there is accountability because all rah, rah and patch on the back, that doesn't work either. You have to have accountability as well. To go one level deeper on that, the accountability side, what happens now if somebody doesn't achieve their goals versus in the past where you said they were getting hit over the head and and that didn't work? What's happening now that that does work when they're not achieving the goals that you think that they can? What, What would occur today? Well, basically, we would go through what they put down as what they wanted to accomplish and why. Why do they want to accomplish that? So we, we would revisit that, and then based off that conversation, okay, they're going to choose, is that because there are some minimum standards to be on our organization, okay? And if their goals don't match up with that, then we, we both choose that maybe this isn't the right fit. But if they still, if that's really what they want to do and they have a, a good reason why they want to do it, the why to push them, 
then, and they're in culture with us, meaning that, you know, what we believe is they're, they're in align with that. Then we're going to figure we're going to coach them up. We will do anything it takes to get someone successful if they really want to do that and make sure that also make sure that they're on the right spot because there are people that maybe, maybe they agent isn't where they are, but they're really talented people. And you have to look at that and make sure that you have them on the right spot. And if you don't, can, is there another spot we could put? Cause I always want talented people, whether, you know, it's an agent or if they're in systems, I had one gentleman that was not making it as an agent, but he's really good with marketing and stuff like that. So we just moved him over to a different position. Howard Britton used to say you want the right people in the right seats on your bus. So you want to put the right people on your bus and now you're moving them around into the proper seat to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Exactly. And, and, and it never goes always smoothly, but it's like flying a plane. We might be off course most of the time, but we land at the right airport. Well, let's step back again. Let's talk about where you're at. You're in Portland, Oregon. For those that don't know, please tell us where is Portland, Oregon? Sure. It's above California and it's below Washington <laughs> on the West Coast. Do you know what the population is there? Portland, Vancouver, because we just started doing work in Vancouver last six months. We're at about 2.35 million. It's a pretty good sized market. And are you working the entire market? We have a pretty wide swath. Could you describe your current real estate market? In the Portland metro area, the average price is about 353. The southwest Washington, which is Vancouver, and that's about probably 30 miles from the Portland area, that's at 294. Type of homes. They're all over the board. I mean, we sell, you know, luxury. I think the most uh, expensive home we sold this year so far has been $1.6 million. And I have an agent that sold uh, a $100,000 houseboat. So our average sales price is, is above. I mean, I think we're hovering around three seventy-five, so a little above average. Your average day is on the market right now? Anything under five hundred is below 60 days. Early, early summer before August, I mean, our average days on market from all across the board is 33 days, and that's from luxury down. So the market has been screaming hot up until about August. I would still say it's a, a very hot market. It's kind of slowed down from multiple offers above 500, but still, you, you know, you're getting in that 450 and below, you're still getting multiple offers. So I assume that prices are moving up. Prices are moving up. My prediction for the rest of the year, they're going to move up slowly. We've been hitting about anywhere from, you know, high single digits, depending on the area. Or anything urban close into the Portland, Portland city is still extremely hot and values continue to climb. But I, I will predict that we'll see slower appreciation this year as well as in 2016. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? A niche or a specialization. So if I look at my client, because we do a lot of business all over the Portland metro, we get a lot of referrals from California, from agents out there. It's not like we only focus in one area because I have agents that specialize in different areas. But I would say our niche is a client that appreciates expertise and a team of experts. So as far as a niche, I just want someone that values experience and expertise. 
let's walk through some of the ways that you're generating your business and we'll talk about each. So first of all, I understand that you generate about a third of your business from past clients and sphere of influence. Let's dig into that for a minute. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? We well, we have a huge database. I'm going to tell you, we just had our visioning for 2016. And that is our biggest push because I think agents do this all the time. I just talked to a young agent the other day that just got in the business and he goes, okay, Nick, I know you're the marketing guy. What do I do? And I said, don't spend a dime. I said, this is what you do. You lead generate and you take care of the people that you're working with and you have a system to continue to follow up. Agents make the mistake. We're always chasing after the little golden coin and the fun new website or the new thing. And the fact is, if we just took care of our clients and had a system to stay in touch with them, that's all you'd need to do. But none of us do that, including myself. I would say on a scale to one to 10, how good are we at staying in contact with our past clients? I would say I give myself a three. I believe we get referrals and stuff like that because of the, we do a great job during the process. And up until now, we, I don't think we've done a good job staying in contact with our clients. We do have an annual Christmas tree giveaway and uh, a blazer game that we take people to during the year. But again, um, that is our biggest push. Do you know how many people are in your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Yeah, we have 10,000. Are those all past clients and sphere of influence, or do those also include leads you've generated over the years? No, they're past clients, sphere of influence of, of everybody that's ever been in my organization. So some of them, we are, we are in the process right now of, of kind of cleaning that up because there's, there's too many people in there. But yeah, we have roughly around 10,000. If you were to try to break that out, could you estimate how many people are past clients? I would say probably 2,000 plus. The rest is sphere of influence, but that includes a lot of people. Did you say you're going through right now to clean that up or to clear that down or pare that down a little bit? Oh, yeah, exactly. What's your process for paring that down? What criteria are you going to use to eliminate people that are in that database? Because that's got to be difficult. You've got 10,000 and there's pride in saying 10,000 for most of us. How are you going to go through and, and reduce it? What process will you use? So basically what we've done is we've taken every, every person that is attached to our agents, meaning myself, people that have worked with us and uh, agents that have been on our team before that are no longer. And every agent has to go through and say, cause we, we rank, we rank our, our clients. We have them 10, nines, eights, and seven, sixes and fives. And anybody, I mean, if we're, if you're a six or a five, for some reason, we didn't do a good job for you. And we don't have many of those, but first we look at, we, we're categorizing them. And Per agent, if you have a ranking of a 10, and how we get the ranking is we send out a survey. For our buyers, we send out a survey. For our sellers, that survey is in our closing packets at title. And so we'll get those back. And so we know what people have rated us. And if they've rated us a 10, that's great. So we're going to go through and and take our 10s and see with all our agents who they act. If, If you got a 10, do you know them? 
And then we have a, we're putting in place our follow-up. We have some videos, and we've had this in place for a long time. We just hasn't, haven't implemented it. So, again, I'm going to tell you like, that this is not our strength, but we are going to get better. Okay? Then all the people that are not, that haven't been ranked, we're giving that to our client services, and our client services is going to reach out to them and just say, you know, just wanted to follow up. We haven't done a very good job. So we're, we're making calls. And based off that, we're going to start getting rid of some people out of our database because our database is just too big. So you're going by a survey that you sent out to your clients after the transaction or, or at the end of the transaction where they've ranked you on a scale from 1 to 10. And if they've ranked you a 10, a 9, an 8, those are your, your high-quality folks that you want to make sure you stay in touch with. You're hoping for referrals and repeats. There are five or six there at the bottom of your scale. Do you have people below that, one through four? And if so, do you just drop them off because something didn't go right? Or how do you handle that? I ask God for forgiveness and I move on. Um, five, six, sevens, and eights. Okay, so sevens and eights, if you have a conversation with them, you might be able to get them into a nine or a ten. Nine or tens are the ones that you're going to spend most of your money to continue to love on them because they love you. You've done a good job. And I would say 70% of our database are nines and tens, but we just haven't done a good job of staying in contact. So we are customizing some, some videos because most of the time it was just me, but we're going to do a little more customization to market our agents on the team as well as me. We had three key pushes for 2016, housewarming parties, more client events, and uh, basically our database raving fan club. Those are our three things this year that we're pushing for. You're going to be putting those in place, and that's good. I also want to keep talking about what's happened in the past because that's what's resulted in a 30-year business. And it sounds to me like, you tell me if I'm correct, you really didn't have a formal system that you were working with your past clients and sphere of influence. It was more happening just naturally because people remembered you from a good feeling from a prior transaction. Is that correct? That would be correct. Now, I personally know my top clients, and there's probably a half dozen that I know that they're going to give me five, six referrals. So just naturally, I'm following up. But there, no, there was, we had a great system of staying in contact with, with our clients during the process. That's why we get a lot of nine and 10 rankings. But after that, we did not have a good system to stay in contact with them. Besides a mass email that goes out to all our people just talking about a monthly update, a monthly real estate update. So you did a mass monthly email and that was all that went out to the general group. And then you worked your, your top six or so people that generated quite a bit of business, five or so referrals a piece, about 30 closings, which, which really shows uh, everybody to, to focus on that top group, those top referrers. That's something great to pull out of that. Also shows that even if you don't do a fantastic job in your systems, good things can happen if you at least have your database and you're, you're doing a minimum there. You're getting the email out 
And now it sounds like you're really going to ramp it up this next year. And I assume you're going to see a lot better results. So thank you for opening up and sharing that with us and showing us what really happened that was was supposed to happen or theoretical. You got the 10,000, you got the 2,000 past clients. You just mentioned how you're going back through them. You've got those surveys to work with. What about the other 8,000? How are you going to handle the other 8,000 in your database? How are you going to pare those down? So the first thing that we've done, we've pulled out every phone number and email. If we had a phone number and email, we didn't even have a name. And I think there was like 800 of those. And we're basically giving them to our ISA, which is our inside sales agents, to reach out. And the script is, hey, this is Dylan with the Nick Shivers team. You'd reach out to us in the past about real estate. And we're just calling to see if you were thinking about buying or selling real estate. So they're, they're going through those, I think there's 800 of them, and then they're just going to mark off. No, no, no. And if, if there is some interest, of course, that's going to get passed off to either a listing agent or a buyer agent. So we're going through them. And then the other 8,000, we are, uh, or the, there's probably 7,000 left. We haven't moved on to that yet, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're just receiving a monthly email, and then you'll figure out what to do with them later. Exactly. Well, yeah, we're, we're going to start with the 800. We don't even have names. Then we're going to move on to the people that are nines and tens. And we're going to focus on that. We're going to go one at a time because one of the things that I have realized, I mean, at this, in this, that's why this year we said, what's one thing? What is one thing that we, if everything else stayed the same, would increase our business? It was past client follow-up and referrals. So we're not going to focus on anything else. Okay. We're going to, yes, there's always that whirlwind of business that's going to happen daily. But if we just focused on one thing, we're really good at taking care of our clients during the process. The one thing that we haven't been good at is after the post closing, what are we doing to stand? So that's the thing that we're focusing on because if you focus on too many things, you don't get anything done. And here's a great book that I would say for a guy like myself that doesn't really like, you know, systems and organization and, and doing that is the four disciplines of execution by Sean Covey. Great book simplifies it. And, and it just kind of boils it down. Don't have too many things that you want to accomplish. We have one goal, more referrals, 50% of our business instead of 33%. How are we going to do it? Housewarming parties, client appreciation events, and then making sure a good system for post closings. Did you say housewarmings? What's a housewarming? Basically, what we are doing is every time that we help someone sell a house, we are going to, if they choose, we're going to host the housewarming party. That is one thing that I did when I first started in the business besides door knocking, cold calling. And basically what I would do was I would hold a little two-hour housewarming party for my clients. It does two things. Number one, it builds relationships because this business is a relationship business. I tell my agents this all the time. It amazes me how some agents that really are not that skilled do a good job. Why? Because people like them. You can be awesome at what you do, but if you're not very nice or you don't build relationships, you're going to struggle a little bit. So the best way to build relationships is spend time with people. So a two-hour housewarming party where you build a relationship with your client and you meet their friends and family. It is a great way to build your database. And that's one of the things that we've just implemented. You said client events as well. What are you going to do there? So we 
have been doing for the last five years, it's a Christmas tree giveaway. So all our, you know, nines and tens get an invite to come out and get a Christmas tree on us. We have Santa Claus there, we have food, and it's been an incredible event. So we're expanding that from one event to three events. So we're going to do the Christmas tree giveaway. We're going to do a pumpkin giveaway. We're going to do a, for our tens and our top referral clients, we have a blazer suite. That's the professional basketball team here in Portland, Oregon. And the last event is going to be a dinner where we promote a organization that I, I started with a guy named Eric Hatch. It's called sell a home, save a child. It's sell a home, save a child.org. And it's basically where we give a percentage of our commission. Um, we donate it to an organization that helps underprivileged children around the world. And what we'll do is we'll have an event where it's a dinner for our clients and our affiliates, like our title companies. And basically what we're, we're going to do there is we're going to try to be that kid. Cause anybody, if a, a little tiny ch- child that was hungry, pulled on your shirt and said, Hey, could you help me? 99.9% of the world would help them. But a lot of times they don't know how. So at this event, we're trying to be that little kid saying, Hey, we need help. And you will have a little fun. We'll uh, have a few services and then we'll earn, raise some money for some kids. Tell us more about this program that you have, this Sell a Home, Save a Child. What inspired you to put that together? I was in Nicaragua, and I was building a resort back in, gosh, was it, I think it was 2005. That didn't go very well, the resort. But I met a lady that was, her name was Gloria Cicada, and she was a Nicaraguan lady that was trying to get these young girls out of the Managua dump, which was called La Chereca, the dump. And she took my wife and I through this garbage dump where I think it was like a thousand people lived. And we saw young girls as young as 10 having to sell their body in order to eat. And Gloria was like, Nick, I want to get these girls out of there. And there was an organization here in Vancouver, Washington, called Ford Edge that started doing a push. They were, they were going to build a place for those girls to go. And that place now is called VS Esperanza. And, and I have been supporting that mission for probably about eight years. And then me and a buddy named Eric Hatch out of uh, the Dakotas decided, Fargo, he's out in Fargo, we said, hey, why not try to get other agents to do this. So Eric's been helping, I've been helping. And so we started an organization called sell a home, save a child. And it's as simple as this. Basically you commit to 250, 500 or $750 a month. And what that does is you get a, a logo that says sell a home, save a child. You get some material that when you sell a home for someone, you can look them in the eye and say, Hey, thank you for using us. And Thank you for helping two, four, or eight children have a meal this year. And, and then, you know, I think, hey, most people in this world help. They don't know how. So not only can agents help, maybe your clients can help. And if we can raise, you know, instead of raising $200,000 a year, we can raise $2 million. I think that every morning I wake up and I look at the picture of a little girl in a garbage dump, Mike, that makes me with my lazy butt get up, get fired up, ready to go kick some butt in this real estate world. Why? Because I know that I'm getting a young girl, a place to live, education, 
a place that they can feel safe and feel loved and have hope because hope is incredible. I go down there every year, see those girls, and they give me probably more than I give them. So it's a big why for me, and it's a big why for my team and why we strive hard. Just so I understand, if someone were to donate $250 a month, that's $3,000 a year, and you said that helps two children. Those children are fed for that full year, and they also get to stay in this other location outside of the dump. Is that, that what happens? Yep, it's called Via Esperanza. There's, right now there's 32 girls. They live there, and it's, it's, it's not an orphanage. It's like a place. It's a, it's a home. It's their home. They're still in contact with their family. But again, they're learning a trade. They're getting educated. They're learning how to live differently. And the cool thing is the first girls that have went through there, now it's been eight, nine years, they're going back and teaching the people that live in the dump, hey, it's not our right to do that with your children. What we need to do is educate. And so they're changing the whole culture of that community. And so when you, when you are a sell a home, save a child agent, you get the logo we got monthly coaching calls with me and Eric Hatch. And Eric Hatch, he'll close probably two. two I think he's, he's on track to do about $200 million. He is a, uh, a conqueror of this industry. It's incredible. So monthly coaching calls. And at the end of the year, we do a mastermind event in Nicaragua. And remember, this just, we just launched it like a week ago. We'll do a mastermind event in Nicaragua where people can taste it, feel it, see it, see what they're doing, see how much they're helping. If somebody were interested in the program, where do they go? Sellahomesaveachild.org. Nick, let's move back into how you're generating your leads. I understand you're doing some radio ads. Tell us about your radio ad. Are you on one station, two stations? How many ads do you run per day or per week? What, what's going on? I'm on one station. It's a talk station here in the Portland market. I've been on there, geez, five years. And so basically I run advertising and I have a little radio show. It's called the Shivers Report. And I just talk about pertinent information. Last conversation I had yesterday, it was talking about the, the rental issue here in the Portland market. My radio ads are basically, I have a program called the Guaranteed Sale. And the Guaranteed Sale is basically if I don't sell a home in a certain amount of time, I'll buy it. Now understand, I tell everybody this, last year I bought six homes because the fact is if someone prices their home right, it's going to sell. And so people call and after I tell them the program, 80% of the time they do not want to go in that program. But if they do, it's great. It gets the phone to ring. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. So you're targeting or going after sellers with your radio ads. You're offering your guaranteed sell program. That's generating leads that come in. They may or may not be interested in the program after they hear all the particulars. The radio ad itself, so how long is the radio ad? It's about 60 seconds, and usually it's a live read from uh, a radio personality, and they're just saying, hey, this is, and, and I do have a lot of success stories. We sell a lot of houses, so they say, hey, Nick, just sold this house here, yada, yada, and he said, and then he says, so if you're thinking about selling a house, call Nick Shivers, is basically what it, it boils down to. Does that run daily? Every day. Does that include the weekends? 
Not the weekends, just during, just during the week. Drive time and uh, both drive time in the morning and drive time in, in the evening. So it's happening twice a day? Mm-hmm. Twice a day, 10 times a week, 40 times a month. How much do you spend on an ad like that? You know, I think my budget for that is about $65,000 a year. What kind of results have you received back? How much business has that brought in? We're about 3.83% ROI. 3.83% ROI. Four times. So we've done probably about uh, almost 300,000 in GCI based off that. About 300,000 is coming into you in commissions and it's costing you about 65,000. That is a really great return on investment. It is. It, it's, it's worked out well. Now, again, it, I've been doing it for five years. So that first year, I think my ROI was about one-to-one. So it's not something that you just do for three months and think you're going to uh, succeed. It's a, it's a long-term commitment. What lessons did you learn between the first year and now so somebody could accelerate their learning curve? What did you change between year one and year five? I hired a guy named Matt Wagner from Radio and Television Experts to to run my radio and marketing campaigns. Were you using Matt the first year or you ended up hiring him as you went along? You tried to do it on your own first. I tried to do it on my own first. How many years did you try to do it on your own? About a year. So about a year, and then you brought Matt in and things picked up right away? Exactly. What was different between what you were doing and what Matt did? I think what Matt did is he, he was in the radio industry forever, and he knows the, the, the down to the exact time when you should run your ad. I think that was the biggest thing. And he has some endorsements that he has connected with that you can get through his organization. Was the script different as well? Yes, because I never did really the guaranteed sale prior to hooking up with Matt Wagner. So it sounds like if I I got the highlights, you were able to modify the time that the ad went out. You were able to get the endorsements of some people that are trusted on the radio. You got a, a strong script and you started running the guaranteed sale program. And the combination of those moved it from a, a one-to-one ROI to a four-to-one ROI. That's correct. So it sounds to me, you tell me if this is correct, if somebody were thinking about doing some radio ads in their area, you would recommend they contact uh, Matt Wagner? Yes. There would be two things that I would advise them. Number one, again, you, you need to make, because it, it's not cheap, you need to make sure you, you can handle the calls and hire Matt Wagner. So two things. You got to have a, a you, I don't think it can be a single agent that does this. You, you have to have a team and then hire Matt Wagner. How many calls tend to come in, say, over a course of a week from this program alone, just the radio? You know, Mike, I don't have that tracked very well because we get a lot of calls from different marketing. I do track our ROI and our, a number of transactions, but as far as the amount of calls, I, I, I don't have that tracked. So I want to ask you a question about that, Nick. You mentioned earlier that math is not one of your strong suits, and you've discovered what it is. And by the way, I, I commend you. That's fantastic. We should all focus on our strengths. But you know these numbers, and you know what the ROI is. That tells me you're getting some kind of report. Are you receiving a report from, say, a CPA or some type of bookkeeper? 
Yeah, I have a CFO in my organization. So basically, anytime we get a, a listing, this is what we, we tr- track. So we've always been really, really good at it. Everything that we do on the listing side has been, we're really good at that. So lead comes in, it goes to one of my listing specialists. It's called a pink sheet. That gets handed to them. One of two things happen. Either they, they go out on an appointment or they don't. So it goes back into our admin office, goes in TP, and there is a thing that says no, no listing appointment. And we also, so I, I look on a monthly basis and I go, okay, great. Because the thing that I track, I want to track, okay, number one, how many listing appointments they went on and how many did they close? And, and of course, what source? Because the key is I don't really track how many leads we get. I, I track again, where our lead sources are coming from on a monthly basis and what is our conversion ratio. So if we get 10 listing leads this week, I can see, okay, we chose to go on five. Okay. And out of those five, we got four, four out of five this week. And and I I expect my agents to have a ratio above 70% on my listing team. And when it, when it does, there's two things, either they aren't good at converting or they're going on, they're going on more appointments than they probably should. Cause we screen hard before we go on a, a listing appointment. So I can look at, uh, again, on a, a weekly basis, I can see, okay, we actually went on eight listing appointments. We had 16 listing leads, but we only went on eight appointments. So again, that allows me to go talk to my, my sales manager and say, Hey, our inside sales agent said that they gave us 20, 20 hot leads, but really we only went on one deal. So it either our agents aren't doing a good job or our inside sales agents. And it has been what a inside sales agent think is a hot lead and really a hot lead is it hasn't correlated, but it's getting better. Now you've mentioned a few times that you personally, as well as your team being trained can really do a good job at qualifying the lead to make sure that this is an appointment you want to go out on. How are you doing that? What, what questions are you asking or what are you looking for when you qualify a seller lead? Okay, so the first thing that we do for our thing, it's called a pink sheet. Okay, and the first thing we want to know, first of all, where it came from, because that tells me, if, was it a referral? Was it a TV? Was it a radio? So it kind of gives me a, an idea how solid they are. The first question that we always ask, why are you thinking about selling your home? Because I'm looking for motivation. We also want to know, are they moving in the area? Again, we want to know if they're going to be a buyer. And your timing. We want to know when they bought the home. Since they bought the home, how many improvements have they made? And what overall condition do they think the home is in? We ask them what they think their home is worth and why. And then we also ask them what's important in a real estate agent. And then what are their plans if their property doesn't sell? So those are the key questions that we ask. Do you ask them if they're interviewing other agents? On the pink sheet, we do not. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't, but we don't ask that question. So you're not concerned about whether you go in as the first agent or the last agent as far as the appointment set? No, we talk about that, but as far as what we ask, we do not ask that question. That is the inbound script. Then it's handed to an agent, and then the agent is looking at that. They're calling to schedule the appointment. And I would assume that they're asking that question. Number one, we always need to know, will both people be there? 
for the decision makers? That's the question that we ask. To be honest with you, I don't know if my agents are asking if they're interviewing other agents. This is interesting to, to hear your process. So the pink sheet is being handled by your ISA. Uh, in the old days, we call them a telemarketer, someone who's qualifying them over the phone. And then if they look good, it's being handed off to an agent with the pink sheet. And the agent then calls up and the agent is setting the actual appointment, correct? That is correct. And so while they're calling up to set the appointment, they're also doing their own set of qualification to make sure that it looks like a, a good appointment because you're going to be looking at conversion, how many, and they know that because you're, I assume you're talking to them about you know, how many of those appointments are converting to actual listings. You wanted over 70%. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and again, one of the things, and this happened about two months ago, one of the things that I was looking at is, okay, our conversions for all our agents fell down a little bit. So, so basically I went back and because there wasn't great notes and they're now doing that is because the market was so hot, they were going on a lot more listings than we would have normally because we screened pretty hard, but uh, we lost a deal. And this is, you know, you, you live and learn. We lost a million dollar deal because we didn't think it could sell and it got listed for a million bucks and it sold like in a month. So that was one that I actually had my hand, me and, my agent, we worked on it together. It was a personal sphere of mine. And it, so it kind of opened up things. And I was looking, I'm like, why is our conversion down to 50%? Well, we were going on a lot more appointments because we weren't tracking. The agents weren't saying the reason we didn't take this is because they wanted way too much money. I was just looking at, Hey, we're not converting as much, but there really was a reason why we weren't converting as we were going on more appointments usually appointments that we wouldn't have went on, but I think everybody got scared because we lost a million dollar deal. What did you end up doing? You made everyone nervous. They got conservative. They went on more appointments than they should. How did you pull that back and, and trust in their judgment? How did, how did you let them know that you're going to trust in their judgment again? And then that, that way, hopefully the ratios move back to where they were. Well, I just said, listen, when I see these, these ratios, that's not good. So we either need to to script again, go back to our process. Let me, let me, so I, for a couple of weeks, I sat with them every week and said, give me a listing presentation. So the listing presentations were good, but I said, okay, so I understand. I need to know why we didn't take that listing. Was it because they chose another agent? You chose not to work with them because that's how I can say, okay, out of the ones that you wanted, you converted 80%. And because of the fact that the people that are on my team, I trust, and I believe that they're in our culture, that I, I'm going to take them for their word. Because, yes, they could lie and say, didn't want to take that one. If I believe that they would do that, then they wouldn't be on my team. You're monitoring what's going on. You're playing the management role. And when you see something get out of line, you're inspecting. And the first place you went was, geez, how's their listing presentation, <laughs> which was a good place to start. And once you realized it wasn't that, then you realized it must have been well, a step before in the appointment setting and that they were being a little too aggressive setting appointments with people who just weren't ready yet, I assume, or weren't reasonable in their pricing. Is that true? That is correct. I'm trying to think of how would you set the 
the standard? Is, is the standard set just as a feel, or do you have uh, some type of rules that you use? For instance, you'll only go on an appointment if somebody's going to sell in the next 30 days, list their property in the next 30 days. You'll only go if they're within 5% of your estimate of the value. Do you have rules like that, or is it just more of a feeling of the agent? The biggest thing is, what is their motivation? From that question, you know if they're going to sell or not. Whether they, we go in and they, they want to be overpriced, even though we'll say, listen, we, we put in our contracts, you know, the market is telling us that we can't get this right now. But if, if we want to try, what we make them do is we, we have an automatic price reduction after 30 days. But if there's a big enough motivation, then I say take the listing. So you'll write a price reduction right into the listing itself? That is correct. And do you write more than one? Have you, do you normally just write one, or do you put a schedule in them for dropping their price down to where it needs to be? At this point in time, we just do one. We, we, we need to formalize that a little bit better, but at this point in time, we only do one price reduction. What kind of motivation... What makes the separation? Give us some examples of if you heard somebody was doing X, boy, they're super motivated. And if you heard they were doing Y, you wouldn't want to go out on the appointment. So what are some of super motivated examples? A relocation. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's you know, a lot of divorces. I mean, that, that kind of stuff. If they're moving out, divorce, unfortunately, it's not happening. But back in the day, you know, I have to sell because... I can't afford the payments. I mean, those are strong motivation levels. Um, I've already built another house. If someone says, I'm just trying out the market. I'm, if, I'm just trying. I want to, you know, because the market's been so hot. I want to see if I can get this so I can upgrade. We don't believe in just listing properties to list them because we list a lot of properties. So we don't do that. But if, if you know, they have a strong enough motivation, you know, then, then absolutely we'll go out on the Probably we'll show them the data, and if they still want to go higher, even though we tell them that that's not the best thing to do, uh, we'll take that listing. I remember when I was young and I was growing up in my neighborhood, I never believed, the reason I bring it up the story is I never believed that somebody would put their home on the market who really didn't want to sell. But in my neighborhood, up the street, there was a man who put a for sale sign in his front yard. He had that sign in his yard for 12 years. He didn't really want to sell. Had something to do with a divorce or something. We never knew why, but there are people that will put their home on the market that don't really want to sell. And so you had to screen them out, correct? Right. And, and I think it's a disservice to someone that if they, let's say they say, yeah, well, I want to sell. And there's a price that they say that, you know, you can't, because I think sometimes what agents think is, oh, okay, we'll do that. And then I'll just get a price reduction. If we know that that isn't going to sell at that point, we are going to tell them the market is, is saying that we are not going to get that. So if you adamantly choose to do that, okay, which doesn't happen very often, but if they do, we'll, we'll try it there, but we want a commitment that in 30 days that we're going to do an adjustment if the market tells us that it's not worth what we're pricing it at. Especially in the upward moving market where things are really percolating and they're seeing prices they didn't expect. They want to feel good, like they didn't leave any money on the table. So it makes sense to try something out for, say, 30 days. But I like the way you've done it so that you know the price is going to come back down to a reasonable level within a reasonable amount of time. Absolutely. 
Nick, let's move on to a couple other ways that you're generating leads. You're generating leads from expired listings. What are you doing there? ISAs. We have two listing ISAs that on a daily basis for eight hours are uh, calling expired FISBOs, circle prospecting, and then, of course, follow-ups. They're going after a couple different groups, expired FISBO, circle prospecting like you did in the very beginning. I'm sorry, what was the last one? Follow-ups, of course, because again, it's a follow-up game. I, I, and any expires FISBO, it's going to be a lot harder to get those immediate. So if I, if I look at our guys, they average about two, two deals a month. Okay. And these are our newer inside sales agents. They'll get two. And those are people that they've contacted that are ready to go. But when I looked at our other ISAs that had been in the program for a long time, because our program is you go ISA and then you get promoted to a, a showing assistant, and then you get promoted to a buyer's agent. Usually it's about a year, but ISA that had been with me for a, a time, he just moved out and I had two guys that moved in. So I have two new guys and they're probably averaging about two a month, two listings a month. But if I looked over the last three years, when you're getting six to seven listings from ISAs, four or five of them are always the follow-ups. It's not the immediate, hey, I'm going to get on it. It's the follow-up. So if you're calling FISBOs and expireds, it's the follow-up. It's not that immediate, hey, yeah, come out and list my house that you're going to want to get. With your expired and for sale by owner programs, are you just making phone calls or are you also sending, say, direct mail or some other way of communicating? No, I'm not doing uh, direct mail. It's just phone calls. Let's say we have an expired comes in your system today. What's the program look for calling that one expired? How often are you going to call them and for how long? So are you going to call them every day for a week? Or are you going to call them every other day? What's, what does your marketing program or your call program look like to that expired? Our system is you call until they answer. So if they answer, you, you get a feel for if they want to follow up. If they want to follow up, you put it in your system to follow up. If they say, no way, I'm not going to do it, then you, you delete them. What we're trying to do is get them right into the pink sheet. We're trying to get them, you know, we noticed your uh, home expired on the multiple listing service. Um, and since we specialize in selling homes that other agents couldn't, when are you interviewing agents? Okay, and then we try to get them into, why were you thinking about selling in the first place? So we try to get back into the reason they're selling. And then we try, and, and again, it's follow-up. It's not that immediate. Okay, great. You're not ready yet. Great. And then they'll follow up in a couple weeks. Um, we'll, of course, we'll send them out an email with a, a little bit of information about our team. And it's just a follow-up. The follow-up is key to that whole thing. Your folks are going to call every day until they get a hold of the seller. Once they talk to the seller, they'll make a determination of whether they look good enough to, to continue to follow up or they're going to fall out of the system. That's correct. And you're doing that for expireds? Are you doing the same approach for, for sell by owners? Yep. For sell by owners are definitely more of a contact sport. So we have a, a basically where we send them out videos of how to do, you know, market. So we'll send them out. And that is, if I, I think expires this follow-up, I think FISBOs are, I mean, you have, you have to probably even go out to the house and have a consultation before you're going to get it because it's the person that stays in contact with them, both on the phone and face-to-face. The FISBOs, you said video, is that 
being mailed out to them, or are you referring them to some videos online? We refer them to videos online. And is that happening orally when you talk to them, or are you sending those folks out a direct mail piece that sends them online to look at videos? We send them. If we can get their email, we'll send them an email. Goes by email. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on something else you mentioned. You said when you bring in a new agent, you start them off in the ISA position, then they'll move to showing agent, then to buyer agent. That's really interesting. So that's, that's your training program. You said it takes about a year? We say that you have a potential of moving out of that position in six months. I mean, the reality is the majority of my team are newer agents. They're, they're not, I think, on our team, we have one agent that's been in the business like seven years. And besides that, I think the longest tenured agent in the industry is three. And I think, you know, I have several that haven't even been in the business for a year. That's a great idea to get them up and running. You're starting these agents off in that ISA position where they have to make calls out to people they don't know. You're going to find out pretty fast about their follow-up skills and whether they can handle this industry. They're either going to love it or they're going to hate it. You're going to know pretty quick. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that is the toughest thing for agents is that, is that to lead generation, I think it's the most important but it's the toughest, and most agents don't do it. The good news is if an agent comes on our team and they've been tenured and they're good, they don't have to do it because we do it for them. But the fact is, overall, man, if they can't do that, then it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for them to survive in this industry. What I would like to see on my team is a 50-50. 50% of the deals that you do should be from me. 50% of the deals should be from you. That's not how our team looks right now, but we're trying because the ISA move up has only been in place probably for about four months, but that's now anybody that comes on our team has to start there. So this is a relatively new idea. You're testing it out to see how it works and how does it look after four months? It looks good. We have right now two agents that have been agents before that we said, hey, we'll give you, you know, a 30 day you know, you have to do it for at least 30 days because they were already uh, agents in the industry, somewhat successful. We're trying to figure out what the best way is, but I think especially for new agents, there's no doubt that that is the best way. Start them there, get them to learn it, and then move up the ladder. And it's a great way because inside sales agents, most people don't want to stay in that position. They could be really, really good, but they want to move up. So it's always a great way to, to get someone to say, okay, here, this is where you start. And hey, you can, you can go all the way up to listing agent if you perform. The ISA, I'm sure people listening are thinking, well, well, that's nice. So someone's making phone calls for someone else and setting appointments. Then how does the ISA make any money? How are they compensated? They are on a salary. So we're paying them $2,500 a month. Do they also get a bonus based on appointments set or closings that occur? Or is it just the flat $2,500? It's $2,500 for the first six months, and then it's a 5% on the closing. You said that if they do well and they move up, they move up to, did you say showing agent? Yep, showing agent. And basically that is that's working a showing agent and they get paid hourly on that by certain aspects that they do. So in our model, it looks like this. Showing agent, if they show one house, it's $50. If they show two it's $70 and anything, it goes 75, 80, 85, and they can make a hundred 
$100 for showing seven houses. So if an agent wants to hire them, it's the agent's responsibility for paying them. An inspection, they get $80. If they go out to show a property and no one shows up, on an inspection, it's 25 bucks, and follow-up or do- just to open a door is another $25. So these are all flat fee per activity. Yeah, we do also have another program. If an agent wants to just say, hey, you're going to do everything, which is showing an agent develops a lead, identifies properties, sets up searches, does all that, then the buyer's agent and the showing assistant can split the commission, which on our team, it's 40% if it's a company-generated lead or a 50% if it's their lead, but they would split that with the showing assistant if they choose. They can either do either way. If they move up to buyer agent, they'll receive 40% of the commission. If it's an internal lead or a company lead, they'll receive 50% if they brought them in from their personal sphere. That is correct. You also mentioned that if things really go well for them, they can move up to the tip top of the, the ladder there, which is the listing agent. How are listing agents compensated? Our listing agents get 35% across the board, whether it's their deal or the company deal. Our listing side of our business is dialed in. So basically, our listing agents get the lead pink sheet handed to them. They schedule the appointment. They go out. They turn in a pink sheet. All their listing paperwork is put together. They go on the appointment. They either get it or they don't. If they get it, it comes back into the admin. Admin puts it out, markets it, and then the agent basically what they do every other week. They're in charge of talking to their client. But besides that, we have also a customer service rep that will call them on the other week to give them feedback, showing. So as far as our listing, it's dialed in. They basically go out, get the listing paperwork, turn it back in. And then what they do is they handle the negotiations and stay in contact with their clients. That's what they do. The listing agent will handle a negotiation on a contract that comes in on the property Do they also attend the inspection and closing? We try to get them to go to the closing. So sometimes I would say probably 50% of the time they'll, they'll get to the closing. The inspection of the properties, if that buyer has some issues that they want to negotiate, does the listing agent negotiate it or one of your admin staff? The listing agent will negotiate it. The admin, there's one person that will help coordinate bids and stuff like that. Are you an escrow state where the agents don't go to the closings? No, you can go to closings. It's just sometimes it's with uh, it being so busy, it, I would probably say it's 50% of the time my agents are getting there. Buyer side's probably about, about 80% of the time to, to 90% of the time, but on the listing side, it's been about 50%. In your state, it's optional. The agent doesn't have to be at the closing. They do not have to. Nick, let's jump into talking about your team a little more. Could you just walk us down a quick list of who's on your team? Sure. So me, which I basically, I am the director of opportunity. Basically what my job is, is to create opportunities because I'm pretty good at seeing opportunities. So that's my job. And I'm, I'm here to uh, motivate people. Okay, I have a CFO, which basically runs all the books. He's given me all the reports on my ROIs, how we're looking overall financials. We have a runner. She is a runner and a 
client care coordinator. So her job is, you know, delivering the lock boxes. She is a professional photographer, so she does a lot of that. And then she also is responsible on, a, on our listing side to, to chat once every other week. So twice a month, she's making calls. The other two times, our agents are making t- calls. We have a buyer coordinator that basically is helping with buyer contracts, making sure timelines and stuff like that. We have a listing coordinator, and the listing coordinator is the person that that puts all the listing paperwork together for our listing agents. They're inputting it in RMLS, getting all the marketing help coordinated. We have an admin manager that she's really in charge of our buyer, our runner, our listing coordinator, and she's also in charge of our marketing person. We have a sales manager that he is in charge of all inside sales agent and buyer agents. We basically have three listing agents that I'm kind of uh, more in control of. They kind of run their own show. And then we have the five buyer's agents. And how many ISAs? Two. The ISAs are, are basically going after listing appointments. Do they also call on the buyer leads? No, they do not. And that's, you know, kind of one thing that we're kind of looking at, but I've had buyer ISAs before and it worked well. It's just that I have been more focused on the listing side. I didn't hear you mention any showing agents. Is that a new idea for you? They're considered buyer's agents, but I would say two of them, and there are two newest agents that they, they if they get their own buyers, they can, they can run with them. But a lot of their work right now is the showing assistance. Because the biggest, biggest problem, I think, is when people come into the industry, it's about a 90 days before you're probably getting a paycheck. So if, if we, when we did it this way, I mean, they can make, you know, they can make a couple thousand dollars a month as doing showing activity. Gets them up and running a little faster. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you brought in a lot of newbies. Do you have a preference whether you bring in someone that's new or experienced? I don't. I think it's more uh, who that person is culturally. Are they willing to learn? Avid learners, I, you know, if you're not learning, if you're not trying to get better on my organization, then you're not going to be here. I ex- one of the first questions I ask when I'm interviewing people is, what are you reading? Especially if they're experienced if they're experienced and they're not reading something to make them better, I'm probably going to pass. If they're brand new and they're young, I can teach them how to be successful. But if, if you're up in your age and, and you're not trying to get better, I'm, I'm not probably going to put you on my team. Are you profitable? Yes. So if I look at my net, I'm about 30, 31% is what, what I'm netting right now. And that fluctuates between 30 and I think the highest month was about 36, but we're about 31% net. Do you pay yourself a salary from the company or do you just take the profit at the end of the year? How's that work? No, I do pay myself a monthly salary. Is the monthly salary part of that profit or are you receiving the salary and then after that cost, the company is netting out 31%? 31% is also counting the, because I pay myself with the salary. So it's not the salary plus a 31% net. It was, it's 31% with the salary. You've also mentioned earlier that your, your CFO is giving you reports. How often are you looking at those financial reports? Monthly. 
So I'll look at it every month as far as the financial reports. I look at, you know, anywhere from weekly to biweekly on conversion on the listing side. For your team, do you have a weekly meeting or daily meeting? How often are you meeting with the team? Yes. The whole team we meet on Tuesdays, and that is basically our sales meeting, uh, admin, and sales. I will meet with my CFO, my admin manager, my sales manager, and my head listing agent on Thursdays. How long are those meetings, each of those meetings, the all team and then the executive staff? The all team is probably uh, anywhere from minimum of an hour up to an hour and a half. The group meeting with my CFO, and those are usually anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. In those all team meetings, how do you keep them interesting? People hate meetings. They don't like going to them. How do you keep them interesting? And what do you discuss in there? Well, first of all, you know, I always talk about, we like to keep things positive around here. And then what we do is we first, we talk about wins. So in an average, we say, tell me about your wins. I always give an example of, because my team, about 10% of our profit is going towards sellahomesaveachild.org. And I always have an email from one of the girls, you know, that just, she just graduated college. So I'm always bringing that into the game because if you just look at numbers, if I just bring out a spreadsheet and say, Hey guys, this is how much we donated this month. That means nothing. But if you could see a picture of a young lady that just graduated college that would have had a life living in the garbage dump, or now she is a interpreter for an organization. Now that is what keeps people driving and and, and that builds loyalty on your organization as well. So we, we, I always talk about that and then we go over, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, okay, what are we doing to get better in the industry? What do you think's going on with the you know, company? We'll do some role playing. But most of our meetings are, uh, again, of course, the business side, and then we talk about things to get us better. The last meeting we did is we talked about the real estate roller coaster because you always see it. You know, I'm like, hey, man, I see you guys. We're doing three deals a month, and then you're crashing down to one or two. Okay, let's figure out a plan to get off the real estate roller coaster. And how do you do that? You got a time block for your lead generation at all times. So that was our, our meeting last, last week. Well, Nick, what drives you? I love the underdog. I was kind of an underdog. So that drives me taking care of underprivileged children, giving people opportunity, my family and my team. That's what drives me. I get nothing better than if... I can look back and say, you know what? I made a small difference. And whether it's one person or a hundred people, I don't care. If I can make a difference in one person's life, like this morning, I woke up and I said, what would make today a great day? And I said, if I could make one person smile today, that would be a good day for me. Nick, why have you been so successful? I believe attitude and grit. I will work hard. I will work really, really hard when I need to. And getting outside myself. I don't earn just for myself. I earn, again, for 
the opportunity to give people that don't have opportunities hope and grit. I'm kind of a junkyard dog. Like, Can you give us an example of when you've had to prove your grit in real estate? Yes. I mean, I think uh, May of 2014, when my CEO basically went to the people that I kept and said, hey, when you guys go out of business, I still have a place for you to two of my people, which trust me that I'm a competitive dude. Um, and that drove me like no other. And, you know, bless his heart. We'll have our best year ever and more profitable than we ever in 2015. So you're competitive. Have you always been competitive? Yeah, I, I have. I mean, again, I, I didn't have a lot of success. I didn't have a lot of, I mean, I was an athlete, but I, I barely graduated high school. I had no clue what was going to happen, but, but I knew somehow that I was going to be successful and I, I will work harder than most people, I think, to get that. And as I get more mature and uh, for me, my faith, that has worked for good instead of just working for myself. Nick, if you're going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? First of all, most people underestimate what they can do in five years and overestimate what they can do in one. So go slow, build a foundation. And, 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 and remember from a person that didn't do anything that I'm telling you. So my old self is talking to my new self, slow down, build a foundation, start with things that aren't costing you money, lead generate, love your clients and develop a system to follow up with your clients. So once you do those three and you're doing really, really good at it, that's when you start spending money on marketing above and beyond taking care of your database. And then just have a plan, have a plan. What's next? Do one thing at a time and it'll be, you will be amazed in five years what you've done. If you do it that way, instead of trying to do 5 million things, which again, I did that. It doesn't have to be that way. Nick, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Absolutely. If you can learn not only from other people's mistakes, but their successes, you're going to be ahead of the game. That's one thing I didn't do a very good job of is learning from other people's mistakes. So I did them on my own. So listen to every single one of these calls and just take the nuggets out. You don't have to take them all. If you're a cold caller and a lead generator, you don't have to be only referral. I did that where I went from lead generation successful to only referrals and step, step back. Use a little bit of both. Take your strength, what God-given abilities you were given, and focus on that. Hire to your deficiencies. Well, Nick, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Yes. The more people you take care of, you will be amazed of how they will take care of you. Well, Nick, you've taken care of lots of people, your clients, team members, and even children in other countries. You showed us the importance of having a big why and the drive it can create. You understand the wisdom of building on your strengths and hiring others to shore up your weakness. 
you traveled the lead generation path from prospecting to marketing to referrals. You inspired us to do well and give to others. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 251 homes last year worth $33 million by getting in front of the inevitable. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.